coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Verizon Enterprise gets breached, and the irony is strong with this one. Details on the NPM fiasco and why Sam Sam is holding up the doctor. Then we've got a great batch of questions, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 259 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on March 24th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. I'd probably go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. Mr. Alan Jude. Hello there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. How you feeling? Yeah, how's the con crud? Uh, I'm mostly over it. Uh, Good. We, we had a nice ice storm yesterday, though. It was uh, quite nice. Everything is coated in about, you know... Really? So half an inch of ice. Is it at, like, an angle? Because sometimes when we've had ice storms here, they, it, like, the rain is actually coming in at an angle, and some of the stuff is actually, like... Yes. Yeah, so the side door of my house was frozen shut, and the front door was fine. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah, so wow. So I had to kind of, like, go outside and, like, dig. <laughs> so today is a reasonable door. day to be hunkered down and doing some tech snap. Yeah. Uh, I wish I... I have a picture on my phone, but can't show it on the stream right now, uh, of the tree out front of my house just coated in ice. It looks uh, pretty spectacular. Well, I should probably make a big disclaimer at the top of the show. Um, Speaking of trees, if you hear some odd noise, and I will definitely try to keep it down to a minimum this week, but uh, I was talking to Rikai about improving the logging situation here at Jupiter Broadcasting. Logging situation? And uh, so he's out in the back right now. He's he's cutting down all the logs. Uh, Actually... (laughs) No, but there is people actually in the backyard logging right now. I joke. I just thought that'd be a funny way to put it. But there is actually like a crew out there that are cutting down a bunch of trees right now. So um, they don't fall on power lines. That's a good. Well, thing. they already fell, but now they're cutting them up. Okay. Uh, yeah, and so it gets a little loud at times. But I've got the uh, handy dandy uh, mute over here. So if it gets crazy, I'll mute myself. But uh, they stopped. I think they're taking a break. So I think we'll be okay. Well, it's like lunchish. Oh, I guess it's past lunchtime. Yeah, they yeah, and they're still not there. Maybe they're lazy. Maybe they're watching the show. Maybe we should get them up to date on uh, this crazy shenanigans with Node. Tell me about this. Yes. So Node. <laughs> I don't know that much about Node, but I learned a oh, lot in the last couple days, and it was <laughs> not fun. Right. So Node is this framework for running JavaScript on the server side. Sure. So all those JavaScript programmers could write server side applications too. Right. Anyway, it has a component called NPM for the Node Package Manager. The point of that is that it provides a way to download prepackaged bits of code. So you can make an application and just say, oh, it depends on these set of dependencies, and use NPM install blah, and it goes and gets it. Seems, seems good. Okay. Although the ecosystem is a little special because the packages aren't programs like in your typical Linux or Unix dependency Thing. You know, you're not downloading like get text and iconv and, and you know, like open SSL or some library like that. You're downloading these are like little functions that just do things. Yeah, yeah. And it's like little code that was written for you so you don't have to and it just kind of snaps yeah, so, in. Yeah, and while that's great, you know, they're each packaged individually. So like you know, sometimes you're installing a package and really what you're downloading is a function, an individual singular function. I see what you're saying. Rather yeah. than, say, a library that provides a whole group of functions in some related way, right? Uh, so, you know, one of the 
big examples of this one that's come out lately is there's a uh, a node an npm package called is array and as you might expect it tells you whether or not something is an array sure <laughs> so this is a one line piece of a one line function that's you know it turns out 72 different packages in the node infrastructure depend on this one line function that just converts it to text and checks if the text string is it converts to is like square bracket array or something. Uh, it, it, honestly, that one suggests to me that there's got to be a better way in JavaScript to tell if something's an array or not than doing what they're doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sort of the meta story a big there. long text string is probably more work than what. We, but anyway, uh, because of this ecosystem they've built up, mm-hmm. you get the things where like this little one line function depends on or seventy two packages depend on this one line function. So if it were to go away or you know the next version were to break. Or something, all those packages would have problems. So that's we set the backstory here. So now we have this. There's a package called Kick K I K. Okay. I don't actually didn't look at what it did, but it did something and whatever. And it was uh, created by a developer named uh, Azer Kosulu. I don't know how to pronounce the name because that letter doesn't exist in English. Um, anyway, he has about 250 packages out there on on npm. And some of them are very, very popular and used all over the place. But because he had this one called Kick, uh, the people over at Kick.com, which is a mobile messaging app, they wanted to create some new open source thing and call the package Kick. I'm guessing some kind of API type thing to interact with their um, messaging uh, platform or whatever. Their messaging platform, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, they were like, "Well, you know, people are going to want to run npm install Kick." Right and and ours isn't what can't be called Kick because there's already this other one going called yeah. Kick. Actually, in a way, you could kind of see their point. I mean, it is their product name. Yeah, but you know, it's three letters. It's not. Yeah, you know, it's pretty yeah. hard to say. It's, I and, agree. You know, it's not worth fighting over. But you could see why they could maybe make the request. I suppose. Yes, and so this started with them emailing back and forth with the developer, asking, you know, could you rename your thing uh, so that we can call ours Kick, and then. You know, it got pretty hostile pretty quick. Uh, you know, uh, there's a post later on here that has all the actual emails going back and forth. Um, depending on your view, you might decide that, you know, the company was being an ass by being like, you know, we don't want to get the lawyers involved as, is you know, a threat rather than them trying to be reasonable or whatever. But, uh, you know, very quickly, the the company and the developer who originally had the package name couldn't come to an agreement. So the kick guys went around the developer and went to the people that run the NPM repository and got the NPM repository to give them control of the name of that package. Mm. And so they could push theirs. Uh-oh. In response to this, the developer, Azer, uh, was obviously quite offended about this, and there's an email you can see in the thread, uh, and he went and deleted all of his NPM packages, which is about 250 different packages. So he's just like, that's it. I'm taking all my code out of this thing. Screw you guys. Which is fine, I guess. Whatever. Uh, although this had unintended consequences and quite a bit of fallout. Because as it turns out, one of those 250 modules is called left-pad. And it's a little 11-line function that pads a string or number with leading spaces or zeros. Well, that's that- it. That that function is used in a lot of very large applications, including Node.js itself, 
uh, Babel, which is apparently some huge application, yeah. and thousands and thousands of other applications. No, of so course. So everybody's code just stops compiling because there's this unresolved dependency. Uh, for example, the left pad package on NPM was downloaded 2,486,696 times last month. Uh, and I think even that NPM package, or sorry, that is array package, apparently gets downloaded 800,000 times a day. So these just be- these become well-established, known tools, and people's just becomes commonplace just to and, use And basically that. everything depends on them. And so when he unpublished it, it broke everything. Do you, and he must have realized that would be the fallout. Uh, I don't know if he did or not, but hmm. I'm pretty sure he didn't care. Yeah. Uh, the problem was that this led to the NPM repository taking the unusual step of un-unpublishing his code. Hmm. And forcefully putting it back in the repo so that all these other applications would start working again. So who republished it? The NPM? Repository people. Repository managers, maintainers. Right, because all of these applications depended on it. Right. Yeah, I've never heard of that happening. I didn't realize that that was such such an easy thing to do. Uh, He must have known. Well, I, I, it's never happened before that we're aware of. Yeah, at least not on a scale like this that's mattered so much. Um, so, you know, the most obvious thing here is that NPN lacks what we would call namespacing. If you've ever noticed the actual name of an Android app is always like com.something.something. Yes. And right, so that... If, say, Chris and I both published an app called JB, whatever, it'd be like com.jupiterbroadcasting.jb thing for Chris's and like com.alanjude.jb thing for mine. And they would therefore have different names mm-hmm. and could easily coexist. You know, and yes. uh, the interesting thing is outside of NPM, uh, in some of the other tools for Node, they actually do have username slash tool name. Hmm. So that two different users could uh, maybe have different versions of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, just kind of like on GitHub, right? It's username slash repo name. Just because there's AlanJude slash FreeBSD doesn't mean I own FreeBSD, just that I forked it or whatever. Uh, But it seems that NPN's problem really here is that they don't have any namespacing to deal with these types of conflicts. You know, like company, colon, colon, project, colon, colon, name, like suggested by the chat room. Mm -hmm. The advantage to the backwards url one though is that it's you know a url basically right <laughs> you know it's dot com or whatever dot is basically the url spat backwards as if it was a uh subdomain right and that's a well-defined standard and example in zfs you can set user-defined properties and the actual best practice is that they are always you know com.delphix colon blah or org.freebsd colon blah mm. specifically so that if you happen to make a property called one thing it uh, doesn't conflict with someone else's that might work slightly differently you know like if you if you have two different snapshotting tools that are going to define their uh, retention policy you want to namespace it so that they don't have problems so anyway um <clears throat> Over at Medium.com, the author of uh, the original Kick module has 
a post here called I've just liberated my modules explaining his side of it. And then over on Medium, same medium.com, Kick's uh, director of PR or somebody has um, their post called A Discussion About Breaking of the Internet. Mm. And then uh, the NPM guys have their own uh, post over on their blog at blog.npmjs.org. Uh, which suggests that they couldn't get npm.org because namespacing. <laughs> As if they not quite understood this problem before. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then separately, there's another blog post uh, by another developer who's basically unrelated to all this, but he says, you know, npm and left pad, have we forgotten how to program? Hmm. Uh, you know, in particular, the left pad thing on GitHub only has 11 stars, meaning not that many people have probably ever looked at the code for it. Uh, but the other thing wow. he points out is if you use a blank uh, JSPM slash MPM based app template to start building your application, your application will then, at this point, which contains no code of your own, consist of 28,000 files because of all the dependencies you've included. Or if you do a fresh install of Babel, which I don't know what that is, but they, it's some big thing. Uh, oh, preprocessor. It turns, it, yeah, it turns uh, ECMAScript 6 code into readable vanilla ECMAScript 5 with source maps. So go. apparently it's something a lot of people use to compile newer code into the older language that more browsers can deal with. Anyway, apparently Babel includes 41,000 files. Hmm. So maybe, you know, what they need is to create some libraries that include a whole bunch of these common things and ship that as a standard library or something, you know, like in C. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could you imagine what your uh, output of, like, apt-get list or whatever would look like <laughs> if every individual C function was packaged as a separate library? No. <laughs> Unmanageable. Exactly. Hmm. And then what's, uh, what's the uh, left pad as a service? Oh, yes. And then so this other website to deal with the problem has been like, well, you know, if if you're worried that this left pad thing might go away, yeah. check out api.leftpad.io slash and then you feed it your string and then your length and your padding character and it will pad it to that length with that character. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, that solves that problem. That's compliant. Interesting. Thank you for breaking that down. I had not really followed what had happened there because... Like Node, and you know, I have I actually do use some <laughs> Node.js apps, but uh. Uh, padding and the input strings are limited to ten twenty four characters, probably to avoid abusing their service or in the free version, ha, because we want to monetize to have enough uh, runway to launch WritePad.io in Q three of twenty seventeen. Of course, if you would like to buy an enterprise license for LeftPad.io, email root at LeftPad.io with your account and the ABA routing numbers. So, what do we do now? Like, it seems like kind of a problem is exposed here. Unless I'm misunderstanding, this seems like an issue. I guess they have an, I guess they have an ultimate re- reversal they can take, but that's not ideal if somebody wants to pull their code. There must be yeah. what's um, the solution. Well, there's a couple interesting things. The first one is over at the NPM blog when they post. Uh, their point is that you shouldn't trust NPM, but the individual developers of the code <laughs> that you use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so on. It's, yeah, but then that's that's a product. That's quite the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then someone on uh, Hacker News pointed out the fact that it's possible with npm seems really dangerous. The fact that you can just delete a package, 
Well, right. the author unpublished or liberated about 250 NPM modules, making those names globally available. Some of those names, like Map, Alert, iframe and subscription uh then became available for anyone to register and replace with any code that they wanted since these libs are now baked into various package.json config files that when you compile node programs mm-hmm. uh, tens of thousands of installs per month for that left pad or uh 2.5 million per month with left pad meaning that the malicious actor could publish a new patch version bump of say map or left pad or whatever that does something malicious and then all of those libs would just download it and use it, not realizing that, hey, all of a sudden the person who makes this library has changed. Maybe it's not even the same thing anymore. So it kind of seems like, you know, they, they haven't thought about security or, or longevity or how to deal with conflicts at all. It feels like a system where expediency was the primary goal. That's, yeah, the whole point of NPM, it was supposed to be make it fast, yeah. right? So the user just types NPM install the thing they want, and it's done. Hmm. Well, it'll be interesting to watch them now to see if they do make any changes uh, in this regard, or just kind of just see what sort of the blowback is over time. Yeah. Um, it's I, sort I, know, of, I think with the isArray, a bunch of projects have switched from having it as a dependency to including their own one-line function. There's been a couple of breaches or issues recently that have sort of, I think, exposed a wider spread problem. Uh, this is obviously one of them. This wasn't a breach, but this was a, a issue. I also think like the recent uh, Linux Mint hack probably exposed the fact that a lot of distributions are susceptible to the same exact scenario that Linux Mint fell susceptible to. It sort of revealed a lot of vulnerabilities out there for people that are just casual right. about their distribution. Distri- distribution. That's yeah, kind of... Yeah, you know, it's like the way FreeBSD does it is very specific. You know, uh, sure, for some expedience on the FTP site, there's also the, you know, SHA-256 files, but you're not really recommended to use those. What the way... The official way to verify that you're getting the real FreeBSD is after you download it, you get the SHA-256 checksum and compare that to the release announcement email, which is an email that's sent when the release comes out, and it's GPG signed by the release engineer, whose key you can verify uh, in a number of different ways, including getting it from the website over HTTPS, or um, it's actually available printed in the the FreeBSD handbook. I love like that. <laughs> you could literally retype <laughs> all the great. gibberish that is the key. And oh, my gosh. That's a party. There was uh, – this was actually done because there was some concern that some governments might, uh, you know, in countries where they censor the internet, might replace the GBG key in the FreeBSD handbook mm. online edition. Mm. So there's like we'll make an actual print edition where we'll print out the PGP keys. Anyway, so you verify that the email is correct, and in the email it has the SHA-256 hashes. There you go. Uh, all right, sir. Any other thoughts on the story before we move on? Um, no, it's just I'm glad uh, this doesn't affect packaging on FreeBSD specifically because we don't package the individual NPM modules because there's literally like 40,000 of them mm-hmm. and it would be a lot of work so we just package npm and then you install them in the sure. track that but. sounds i think that's pretty common i wonder though uh wonder how many people i wonder how many people were bit by this in our community uh Curious i don't know about. but a lot of people that do anything with node.js were yeah. definitely bit by this yeah uh you know a lot of automated builds and continuous integration stuff broke down immediately because right. if you're using babel to convert your code to 
to as part of the compilation process, then it stopped working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, then. Well, I'll take a moment and tell you about DigitalOcean, sponsor of the TechSnap program. Go over to DigitalOcean and use the promo code SNAPOcean to get a $10 credit and support the show. A $10 credit will actually get you quite a ways, too, because their pricing plans start only $5 a month. In less than 55 seconds, you'll have that rig up and running with 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20-gigabyte SSD, because they're all SSDs, and a, and a, a terabyte, a freaking terabyte. I said yes, a terabyte of transfer, and that's just the beginning price point. It's really nice with a very intuitive control panel, a fantastic, well-supported API with lots of open-source code written around that. A very, very nice way to spin up your own Linux or FreeBSD rig. Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, CoreOS, CentOS, FreeBSD, data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, Toronto. They have ways to spin up multiple machines at once and manage multiple machines. An HTML5 console that you can use from any of your devices. And then, to top it all off, some of the best open source applications available with one click, like the new OwnCloud 9 and others available. One click, they deploy them up on a DigitalOcean droplet for you. They also have fantastic tutorials to take it even further, like how to use Let's Encrypt on Ubuntu 14.04, or how to set up Rocket Chat, which is a great Mattermost or uh, Slack competitor. A bunch of actually fantastic tutorials. Go there and just check them out for FreeBSD, Ubuntu, Debian, Yeah, they have a great one for uh, FreeBSD and OpenVPN. If you nice. want to make a nice, secure VPN, and with their selection of different locations, you can decide where you want the VPN. Plus, they have a speed test site, so you can actually test the speed of the different locations. Uh, you know, I have a friend in Norway, and they found that uh, the one in Germany was uh, faster for them than the one in Amsterdam, even though Germany's further away. There you go. Uh, that's really cool. Lots of nice uses uh, for DigitalOcean. I love it you know, continuously. I've been loving it for SyncThing because it's my way of having something that's in between my house, which is on a very, very slow connection, and the office, which is on a very fast connection, and the DigitalOcean droplet, which is just blazing fast. 40 gigabit E connections coming into those hypervisors. These things are super fast, and it makes – like when I put something up there and I get to the studio and I pull it down, it is – it pulls it down as fast as the uh, studio's internet connection can take it, and it's awesome. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And don't forget to use that promo code SNAPOcean. That's what supports the show and keeps us going and gives you a $10 credit. So tell me about this Verizon Enterprise customer data breach. Because, yeah. I mean, isn't so, Verizon supposed to be on top of this kind of stuff? This is Verizon. Well, in particular, we just covered their release of their 2015 report mm-hmm. about all the data breaches they investigated. Yeah, with their super cool team. So uh, what happened, Alan? Yeah. Uh, so basically their website was breached and somebody apparently downloaded up as many as 1.5 million customer records from <laughs> Verizon Enterprise Solutions, which is not related to the phone company. Okay. Well, it's the same company, but basically they didn't get any phone company customers. So yeah, uh, Verizon Enterprise Solutions, which is the business-to-business unit of the telecom giant, uh, mostly gets called in to help Fortune 500 companies respond to the world's largest data breaches. And that's how they have this awesome report. (laughs) But now they themselves are reeling after a data breach involving the theft and resale of customer data. Womp womp. So uh, Krebs says, earlier this week, a prominent member of a closely guarded underground cybercrime forum posted a new thread advertising the sale of a database containing the contact information for 1.5 million customers of Verizon Enterprise. Hmm. The seller priced the entire package at $100,000, but is offering to sell off chunks of 100,000 records for just $10,000 a piece. 
So 10 cents a person. Uh, buyers also uh, were offered the option to purchase information about security vulnerabilities on Verizon's website. So <laughs> I don't know how that one will work. It's like, oh, you can buy the uh, whole block of data. Or for this other price, I'll just tell you about the vulnerabilities and you can go get it yourself. Nice. Uh, Verizon recently, di- uh, so here's a quote from Verizon. They say, Verizon recently discovered and uh, remediated a security vulnerability in our enterprise cli- client portal. So this would be the website where enterprise clients go and log in uh, to access their Verizon stuff. So it makes sense. That it has a database of all their customers. Mm. Uh, the company said in their email statement, our investigation to date found an attacker obtained basic contact information on a number of our enterprise customers. So I'm guessing that's like email address, maybe phone number, name, that kind of thing. Uh, no customer proprietary network information, what they call CPNI, or other data was accessed or accessible. So in particular, this seems to be just contact data for you know the user profile for their corporate portal site and not some of the more intimate details that Verizon might have on a lot of these networks. In mm. particular, if Verizon's investigating breaches inside your network, they might have you know administrator passwords. Right. And SSH keys and things to get access to anything in your network. And certainly IP addresses of critical infrastructure, models and makes, which would be very valuable to know. Yeah, so, all yeah. kinds of information, like a detailed map of your network that the bad guys would love to have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, apparently, none of that got out and wasn't accessible from the site that was breached, which is just a web portal for enterprise customers. <clears throat> well, at least uh, they didn't have a web server on their file server then. Now, it appears the data that's available for sale is in MongoDB format, which either was a convenient place for the attacker to put it as they were scraping it. No. Or Verizon was using MongoDB Th- in the back end so. for their web app. Come on, of course they were. Which is possible. So so then it raises the question, did, did Verizon forget that MongoDB has no authentication and should only be bound to an internal socket and not accessible from the internet? Well. Hard to say. Um. The one downside to Verizon's reports is they usually redact a lot of information because they're about customers. <laughs> Maybe, as an example, Verizon will explain how they screwed up in very deep detail. Yeah. Uh, no customer request. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Um, partly probably because uh, <laughs> if they exposed just how negligent they were, they may be open to lawsuits. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, like the fact that maybe they were using MongoDB and it wasn't. Well, on. in particular, if you remember, we covered a couple of months ago when someone found that there was, you know, thousands of MongoDBs this publicly exposed to the internet and yeah. it scraped all kinds of data from them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder if, you know, the guy who like this would just happen to have saw that report and been poking around and see what some of them are. I wonder if any of these actually have so, anything I might care about. If them. I were, if I were Verizon, and uh, no, you know what? I here's here's what I am. I am uh, I am the uh, ne- I am the social media marketing guru who gets millennials. And if uh, you hire me, I come in here and here's what I recommend to you. I say you blame it on ISIS or you blame it on on uh, the mob or you blame it on anonymous. You don't blame it on screwing it up. You got to defer well, blame. Yes, and this, it'll be the Russian mafia, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'd be perfect. Another well, country. They, they are offering it for sale on the underground. You know, this is not yeah. just. Uh, but, but here's my this here's wasn't the thing. Some, though. Sixteen-year-old in the UK. I don't take that as they did the they did the they did the act because here's why: if so, somebody could do the act and then come to them and sell it to them, and then of course they're going to turn well, around and sell it. Right. It, it definitely wasn't Russian mafia because it's for sale. The Russian mafia would have just kept the data itself and and exploited because you know it's 
the Russian mafia is like. Oh, I see your point. Buy the data, right? Right. They would sit but on I'm it and exploit this it. This wasn't a 16 year old in the UK, you know, like the, what was it, the, the talking dolls or whatever that we get in a bunch of the other ones. Yeah. So while this was a fairly sophisticated attacker, it doesn't mean it was a sophisticated attack. Because, hmm. you know, if their MongoDB was just exposed, then it was exposed, right? I thought once we had cyber information sharing, this was all going to be taken care of. Well, no, the cyber information sharing would mean that Verizon wouldn't have told anybody and they would have just, <laughs> just kept told the government. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Alan. So Krebs has a great quote here. Uh, the irony in this breach is that Verizon Enterprise is typically the one telling the rest of the world about how these sorts of breaches takes place. Right. You know, Krebs recommends Verizon's annual data breach investigation report because each year is chock full of interesting case studies from actual breaches. Case studies that include hard lessons, uh, which mostly uh, age very well. I, if you look at the database breach report from like four years ago, it's still all stuff that we still need to learn. You know, mm-hmm. or you know, just because it's four years old doesn't mean that the data in there won't actually teach you things. According to the 2015 report, for example, Verizon Enterprise found that organized crime groups were the most frequently seen threat actors for replication attacks of the sort likely uh, exploited in this instance. Uh-huh. Verizon says virtually every attack in this data set, 98%, uh, was opportunistic in nature, all aimed at easy marks. Rather than, you know, they've decided what company they're going after and they're trying everything they can to break in. Right. It's low hanging fruit. found a way stuff. to break into some stuff. We're going to try and just try that on everybody and see what it works. Uh, yeah, so the cost to do that is low, so why not? Yeah. So this particular attack could be either, right? Because it's Verizon, it's quite ironic and it's possible that the attackers went after them in particular for the, not just for the lulls, but, you know, they, this data is especially valuable. Because it's a list of the exact people that are expecting to get emails from Verizon saying, hey, there's a breach in your network. You need to do this to remediate it or whatever. You know, phishing those people with like very well-crafted emails that look like they're from Verizon that tell you to install this software could lead to the compromise, right? So it's like your network's breached. You need to run this software to clean it up. And that software is actually what breaches your network. Can you, can you see that happening? Mm. I can see that happening. It could be amazing. <laughs> uh, um, so, you know. This data is especially valuable. The attacker might get up to $100,000 for it. So you can see where they might have targeted Verizon to get this. At the same time, it's entirely possible that they were just going out and looking at every MongoDB until they found something interesting and it happened to be the Verizon one. It feels like that's what it is to me. Yeah, it's, it's likely, you know, just like Verizon says in the report, 98% of the yeah. time, yeah. it's not you targeted. It's yeah. just that, you know... Go to, you know, it's a board driving across the internet, and nope, there's some exposed database. Let's see what's in there. <laughs> you know, hey, Verizon, can you hear me now? Patch your S. Good. Patch your S. Right? Yes, can you hear me now? Patch your S. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Any other thoughts on this story, Mr. Jude? But mostly just, uh, I'm sure we're going to hear some amazing spear phishing attacks coming out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we might not actually hear about them because it'll be so embarrassing. But yeah, it's true. Uh, but it's a, good, know, it's a good client that, list. Yeah, that is a client list of Fortune 500 mm-hmm. people who actually pay for Verizon to come and investigate their breaches or to help them secure their network. You can do some serious damage with that. <laughs> if nothing else, you can sell it for some money. Exactly. You know, uh, well, people would some an attacker will actually be willing to pay a hundred thousand dollars for that because you know with some of these 
getting some Trojans in there and, and, and hijacking some bank accounts, you can make off with a hell of a lot more than $100,000. Speaking of making money, our next story is about some ransomware where the guy wanted Bitcoins. Uh, and they talk about uh, how he experimented with different prices to see where customers would drop off. <laughs> so we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. It's a, it's a pretty interesting story. First, though, I'll uh, mention Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com. You can go there to save $25, or, uh, $25, I should say, off your first device. Or if you have a Ting-compatible device, and you very likely just might because they have GSM and CDMA available, for, well, then you'll save $25 on your first month of Ting. Well, guess what? And this is what I love about Ting. I remember, I remember when I switched, uh, it was over two years ago, and I actually thought there was kind of a mistake for my first bill. And I was like, this is kind of an awkward introduction because I didn't – I had a dollar credit because my first month – actually, it was more than a couple of dollars because it was like I'd use my first month. I used like $15 or something like that. Very low. It's, it's, it's been a while now. And I remember having extra money left over because I brought over my Evo 4G and they credited my account, which is which is just really stunning. Uh, the average Ting monthly bill per device is 23 bucks. So that's your minutes, your messages, your megabytes, plus the $6 for the line is, is 23 bucks. <laughs> I wish I wasn't paying 83 bucks for my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Alan. I used to pay 130 before taxes. Uh, they have great customer service and, like I said, CDMA or GSM, so you pick whatever works for you. A really good dashboard to manage it. Uh, so much so that, like, I have a MiFi that I use for road trips. I just go into the Ting dashboard and disable it when I'm not on the road trip. And then I just turn it on when I want to go on the road trip and pay for what I use. So if I go on a road trip for a couple of weeks or a week and I put $15 worth of data on there or whatever it would be, I don't know, I'm just, you know, guessing. Um, that means about once every three months I pay 15 bucks to have a hotspot that has no restrictions, that has no contract, no determination fee, and is just ready to go. TechSnap.ting.com. Go there. Check, check them out. Try out their control panel. Take a little look at their uh, blog. And also, I want to encourage you considering the LG Volt 2 if you don't want to spend a ton on a phone. $66 unlocked. And today, LG announced they're upgrading it to Marshmallow. So you can get a $66 Android phone that runs Marshmallow that's unlocked with no contract. That's pretty sweet. I mean, it's not like the Nexuses. They have those up there too, or the Samsungs, <clears throat> like the, the Galaxies. But, you know, $66 ships tomorrow. The SIM card is included, unlocked. You only pay for what you use, and it's getting an update to Marshmallow. And Ting never stands in the way of the updates. It's not like the other carriers where they drag it out. Yep. It's pretty cool. Because Ting's not worried about sticking the Ting logo on everything. Right, yeah, or integrating their video streaming uh, cast service or whatever it might be. TechSnap.Ting.com. Go there, check them out, and support this show. Try out their savings calculator and see what we've been talking about. A big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, so Sam Sam's been holding up the doctor with a little ransom, it sounds like, at least according to the, uh, the Talos Yes. Yeah, group. The Talos guys. Yes. Uh, Sixo Talos <laughs> is currently observing a widespread campaign leveraging the SamSam ransomware variant. What's special about this is unlike most <laughs> ransomware, SamSam is not launched via user-focused uh, attack vectors, hmm. right? It's not email to you in a phishing scam. It doesn't come from an exploit kit on a website hmm. or anything like that. Yeah. It doesn't get installed because a user screwed up and clicked something. Uh-huh. <clears throat> This particular family of ransomware is distributed via compromised servers. 
So they compromise a server, install the malware, and then use that to spread from computer to computer across the network and basically island hop with the malware. Ah, that's clever. So they use the uh, uh, they compromise a server and then go in and, and take out the individual machines. Uh, a particular focus appears to be in the healthcare industry because that's uh, well because a few hospitals have paid the ransoms before, <laughs> and uh, because they're kind of in this situation where they can't have downtime to deal with it. Right? True. And, and so- also, they're in that perfect mess of there's only you know depending on your size, there's only three or four applications that really are going to work for you. So there's it's not an exactly a monoculture, but there is. Uh, it's yep. not a very diverse culture, so it's kind of easy to target you because you would have an idea of what kind of software would be running on the servers in almost all of those cases. As you know, I've worked, I have worked in almost a dozen, dozen different hospitals as a contractor, probably a dozen, yeah, and a lot of them were either using very similar applications or, or applications that they constructed in a very similar manner. And I would imagine if you had any kind of experience in that industry – you would have a very good idea of what to target on the server side. You'd know what kind of low-hanging fruit's out there. Yep. Uh, completely unrelated, but in a story I was reading earlier from Krebs, sounds like uh, about half of all U.S. states use exactly the same software to do fraud detection on income tax filing. Oh, what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like uh, somebody should... Uh, that that'd be a good new startup to start and make lots of money selling yeah. uh, fraud detection software to the government. Anyway, uh, yeah. So a particular focus on the healthcare industry. They say the adversaries have been leveraging a tool called JexBoss, which is based on JBoss, which is a JavaScript thing or Java thing, not JavaScript. Uh, which is an open source tool for testing and exploiting JBoss application servers to gain a foothold on the network. Mm. So JexBoss is basically an intrusion tool to let you figure out if your JBoss is vulnerable, but they've been running it in order to find the vulnerability and then using and exploiting it after that. Sure. Kind of like, you know, Metasploit is it's like Metasploit, right? Designed yeah. to help you as the administrator make sure that after you've installed the patch that it's not still vulnerable, but also helps other people find out that it's vulnerable. <laughs> uh, you know, once they have access to the network, they then proceed to encrypt multiple Windows systems uh, using the Samsung malware and all that fun. Uh, upon compromising the system, uh, the sample will launch the samsam.exe process, hmm. which begins the process of encrypting the files on the system. Uh, samsam encrypts various file types, so it picks, uh, picks specific file types, which are uh, the list is in Appendix A on the Cisco report. Uh, they use Rindel, which is AES, uh, and encrypt it with a key generated by which is an RSA 2048-bit key. Uh, Sounds... This makes the files unrecoverable yeah. unless the author makes a mistake in the implementation right, of exactly. the encryption algorithms. It's legit yes, unless they both, screwed it up. Yeah, these are both standard, like industry standard, high grade security encryption stuff. This is not the thing where you're going to. The AV vendor is not going to be able to come up with a tool in a couple of weeks you that would, just undoes. You all. know what's funny is you would think one of the indicators that this is happening to you is the horrible performance you would get all of a sudden on your computer. Like it would just be yeah. chugging away as it's working on this. Don't you think you would notice that? What's this Samsung.exe uh, well, file doing? <laughs> well, no, no, you know, I, you're picturing a hospital. Yeah, okay, and, fair, uh, fair. I know it just it, you know, it feels like the that computers would be my red alert. Probably feel too slow. And then the people right, that are using exactly. them are not the type of people that yeah. are going to look and see what's what's this extra EXE doing here. I, I find it interesting because uh, the, the Talos talks about how the thing doesn't really try to hide itself either. You know, mm-hmm. So it's fairly out there when it's doing this. 
Yeah, they say uh, one interesting note regarding the samples Telos uh, was able to observe is that the malware will abort the encryption routine if the system is running a version of Windows uh, Microsoft Windows prior to Vista. Uh, <laughs> so it doesn't work against Windows XP. So That's some cool. hospitals might be safe. Get it out of here. Yeah. So you are safer in this one instance by mm-hmm. running Windows XP or hell, even Windows 2000. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if they just felt sad for those people or they're like, we're not confident that after they pay the ransom, we'd actually be able to undo it. I bet it, it doesn't have the cryptographic support or something. I bet it's <laughs> Maybe like, they depend yeah. on the Windows kernel to provide the crypto <laughs> yeah, support. There's something there that they need to do the encryption of the files. <laughs> Sorry, can't encrypt your files. Don't have compatibility with that. <laughs> they, uh, there were a couple of open source tools that were leveraged. Oh, sure. Oh, my goodness. In addition to Jexbox, uh, there is a testing and exploitation framework for uh, JBoss. They also saw Regery, which is registry and Gregory kind of smashed together. Awful. Uh, that's the initial, so J- Jexbox was the uh, initial infection vector to get a foothold in the network and spread yeah. the ransomware. Yeah. And then the second component was this Regery as well as tunnel.jsp which would make the reverse tunnel out of the network uh, ah. uh, the jo- from the Java server. Hmm. Yeah, it creates a SOX proxy that allows the bad guys to basically have a reverse tunnel into the system so that they can operate on the individual machines manually as well. Uh, Taylor says, as we have monitored this activity, we have started to see changes in the amount and type of payment options available to victims. Initially, we saw a payment option of one Bitcoin for each PC that was infected, Later, we saw the price for a single system raised to 1.5 bitcoins. It is likely the malware author is trying to see how many people will pay for their files. And, you know, if it's more people at a lower price, he'd rather sell it at the lower price and get more money. But if it's only a couple of people going to do it, then those, if, if people are willing to do it, they're probably willing to do it at almost any price. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, they added an option for bulk decryption of all your machines for a <laughs> flat rate of 22 bitcoins. Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah, well, you know, if you're a hospital, he's like, well, we don't even know how many machines we have. Just give us a flat rate. You know, if I were like Coinbase or uh, BitPay, there's got to be some exchange out there that's making bank off this. (laughs) Hmm. Wow, what a bad position to be in. You know, you you have a little low-hanging fruit, your servers get infected, then your workstations get screwed up, and before you've even figured out what's going on, your files are encrypted. And then... So 1.5 Bitcoins, what would that be right now? Let's go look at uh, Bitcoin average. Uh, do I have a Bitcoin average? Do you, ha- do you have the Bitcoin average right now, Alan? Looks like the Bitcoin average price, as we are recording this, is $419. So uh, in the U.S. Uh, greenback. So yeah, one Bitcoin, 1.5 Bitcoin, it'd be, you know, quite a bit of money. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. Oh, Bitcoin. Continues to drive all kinds of interesting commerce. Alan, you know what else is interesting? IX Systems. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. You land there to support the show and check out more and download their white paper. Then browse around their site. It's a pretty cool company. Stacked full of really cool people that do a great job. They've been around for a long time, and they've really figured out how to do this, how to build enterprise-grade hardware for whatever your open-source workload is. And you know what? I bet they'd even – I bet these systems – I've never actually asked – but I bet these systems would probably even run Windows. As an experiment, yep. I did try – I tried, I think, Windows Server 2000. I can't remember what it was, 2012, on the FreeNAS Mini for like 30 seconds <laughs> just to see if it could do it. And then went right back to FreeNAS, which was nice because they put the FreeNAS like on a separate little uh, 
drive. So yeah. it's like reverting back is no big deal. <clears throat> uh, but, you know, I've seen them build servers that run like Arch Linux and stuff. You can do whatever you want. They have uh, <clears throat> a really cool blog post. I bet you've already seen this one. The uh, hashtag server envy racks on deck. Mm-hmm. Look at that. Yes, that's very nice. Yeah. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is they have a racking service. Well, you know, they will actually come out to your location and like rack all the servers for you and do the cabling all nice. Can I tell you something? That's the part I hate the most. I mean, I don't mind like one or two servers, but I don't want to spend a whole day racking. And to have somebody come out and do that, holy crap. And look how good that looks too. Yeah. You know, someone that does it a lot knows all the little tricks. Now, do you You know... know If you're doing it manually, you get half done, you're like, yeah, you get fast at it. If you do it a lot, you get fast at it. You kind of go like off into like like a... Like a Zen state and just get whipped. Now, do you know any rumors? And do you have any updates on that uh, updated free NAS mini that's going to be like two weeks and and we should know? <sighs> Man, you know, just we were because you know we are full up on storage. We got like yep. nothing left on ours here at the uh, JB1 studio, and so I was just as an experiment looking around at different NAS options. Free NAS crushes it, and you put something with the, you put some of the free more, a few more bays in there, and the Free NAS Mini is such a nice rig already. For I'm, you, I I just picture that that ninety bay thing, and you just keep filling it as you need. Oh, I know that would, not, it's it's probably too expensive just for the chassis because you don't need ninety. One day, Plus, there's actually no CPU or anything in that. that <laughs> right. That's just a JBOD. You would have right. to connect it. To I could do that. Hey, man, <clears throat> we can make that work. A whole bunch of sloppy well, yeah, disks. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, an eight drive with six terabyte drives, you could definitely Heck yeah. do some serious Heck yeah. stuff with that. I mean, there's so much, you know, that just gives you an idea of like the scope of what IX can build uh, from free NAS minis all the way up to just these unbelievable enterprise well, the, grade solutions. The big one, though, is if you check out their blog, they have the article about usable storage. Mm. It's like all these places will try to sell you a machine based on like, oh, this is the total size of all the hard drives in it. But obviously, with the redundancy, you don't get that much space. Or even if they do factor that out, they don't factor the fact that, you know, you buy a three terabyte hard drive and you get like 2.7 terabytes usable space, right? So, you know, if you go and you order like a machine and, and one company will tell you that it holds 36 terabytes and the other ones, yeah, it holds 30, but it turns out it actually holds like 21.6. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, if you just paid for a 30 terabyte machine and it only holds 21.6, you're going to be awfully disappointed. Uh and so, you know, when you tell the IX guys that, you know, I need a machine that's got to hold at least this much data, it's going to actually fit that much actual data. I, uh, I, I can't wait. Uh, just, just to see what the new one, just going back to the free NAS Mini, the one that they, they've been teasing. Uh, I've, the free NAS Mini has been the demonstration machine for me that showed me that the Intel Atom server processor is legit. Yes. Uh, so many. Well, that's the other big thing is having ECC RAM even though it's yeah. a tiny machine yeah. with a 17-watt processor. Yeah. So that was a that's a, I'm, so I'm really curious to see where they take it. So support the show and check out IX Systems by going to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Ultimate rigs built for your open source workload powered by those incredible Intel processors. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And a big thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So, Alan, and I bet there was a new episode of BSD Now, and I bet it was episode 134 Making making up the port street? What? What? Oh, it's, marking. <laughs> it's so marking. Uh, I was like, you're making it up. Mark Feldner of, uh, from the FreeBSD oh. port security team. 
Oh, I see. It's a pun. Mark. Ah, uh, marking. Mark oh, Felder from Airport Security. I thought yeah, you were going to tell me there's some sort of awesome new like Markdown integrated. Uh, yeah. You also covered the Ubuntu BSD first beta release. And, yeah, uh, we didn't know much about it. It's like, why is somebody doing this? It's and weird. what about some uh, ZFS uh, RAID Z performance? Uh, on Ubuntu? On, no, it's some talk. I see. Oh, that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there were some benchmarks, mm-hmm. but you know they're benchmarks. Nobody does benchmarks correctly, ever. <laughs> That's a hell of a tease for an episode of I've Ever Heard One, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> VSD Now, episode 134. Go grab that sucker in the HD version. That way you get full Jude right as TechSnap wraps up. You can watch that. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Or maybe like some sort of weird stealthy stealth ninja, you started a thread in our subreddit and nobody saw it at techsnap.reddit.com. Yeah, but our first email this week came in from Kevin. Uh, and he's got a question, and I thought this is fascinating, about peer-to-peer communications. I'm working on making a widget Let's just assume it's based on a Raspberry Pi. There could be any number of these on a private network. I would like for them to be able to securely find and communicate with each other. I figure some simple multicast would be fine for the discovery, but I'm not so sure about communicating after that. Once the widgets know about each other, I would like them to be able to communicate with each other, maybe over SSH, and know that they are communicating with another one of my widgets and not some imposter widget. If that makes any sense, I'd love your input. Thanks for the great show. Kevin, any ideas there, Alan? A couple things. Um, multicast is probably overkill. Uh, if you're all in the same network segment, a broadcast means it'll be fine. Uh, or another option is something like the Link Layer Discovery Protocol, or LLDP. And this is uh, something like a lot of switches and other types of devices have built in. And you can give information like if you LLDP query your switch, it will tell you, hey, I'm this switch with this name and my configuration says that I'm located in this place and uh, you know, you're connected to port number four and the switch's MAC address is this and the switch's uh, IP or um, administration portal is, is this IP address or whatever. Um, and that's, you know, Bonjour and Avahai and so on are, are kind of related to that. Uh, so these basically, each one would like send out a, a periodic broadcast saying, hey, I'm a device, I'm over here. And then each other one could keep a list and be like, oh, so I know about all the other widgets that are this type or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's so like if you have an <clears throat> iPhone and you have an Apple TV on the same LAN or you have a yeah. you have an Android and you have a Chromecast on the same LAN, the way that your Android device knows there's a Chromecast is because when it has power, it's broadcasting with dynamic DNS and whatnot. I am a yeah. device with this ID. And then the receiver is looking for devices with that ID. So that's how you do the discovery part. And yeah, there's probably a lot of ways to do that. Um, it depends what your threat vector is. If your threat vector is fake versions of your device, then you know now you're looking at a DRM type thing. But in general, um, if you're not worried about somebody compromising the storage on your device, then you could just use some kind of like predefined keys um, or something. But the the bigger question is, if there are five of these in my network and five of these in your network, should they be secured in such a way that my five and your five are different or, should, or is it okay if the, my five and your five share the same key? The problem obviously being that if I extract the key out of mine, I can now decrypt all the conversations on your side, right? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, see, so there's a few good suggestions in the chat room. Like, uh, Daring says <laughs> if all widgets are signed with the same CA, they can identify each other and pick out imposters that way. That's not bad. Uh, right. So, yeah, you could use SSL and issue certificates. The question there is, uh, again, if you want my five to be different from your five, mm-hmm. how do I initially make you know the fifth one that I bought join up with my other four in such a way that they're set up but isn't the same encryption as yours, right? That is a trick. Do you know what I mean? I do. Uh, so it's part of the answer but not all of the answer, I think, for him. Yeah. Maybe we got him in the right direction. Let us know how it goes. Yeah, so, so uh, it's it just comes down to SSL or SSH is probably the easiest. Mm-hmm. Uh, with SSH, how do you decide which host keys to trust, though? Uh, Smart Lurch writes in with a question. Hi, love the show. Your recent talk about Nagios and Elk got me thinking about setting up a monitoring server at my work. I was wondering what the different information I would gain from SNMP versus Syslog. I know all my switches and FreeNAS boxes support both SNMP and Syslog. What would be the data? What would be the data that would end up being redundant between SNMP and Syslog, and a waste of bandwidth? Or is it worth monitoring both if the device supports both? Is there some technical advantage? from one over the other. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Smart Lurch. Well, it really depends what you're monitoring. But in general, there's two sides to SNMP. There's the one where you connect to the device and and check, you know, some stat. And then there's SNMP traps where the SNMP calls out to you and says, hey, this thing just changed. Uh, whereas syslog, you know, it's logging events. And so normally if nothing's happening nothing happens in syslog but even when nothing's happening snmp is constantly updated so you probably want to do both because they mostly cover different things right snmp right? would be i mean just a real quick way to think about it. snmp might be a great way to monitor transfer CPU metrics or usage. yeah cpu usage where syslog is a great way to tra- to monitor hardware changes login events um yep uh, any anything that might write to your security log or when it when a daemon crashes all of those things go to syslog not necessarily to SNMP. So kind of two different things. Uh, SNMP is more generally used by Nagios to monitor uh, for uh, service uh, if, if it's up or overused or or something like that, where syslog is more often used. Well, I, I guess you could parse syslog for an outage and generate an alert from that, but most often syslog is not generally used to drive an alert an event system. It can be, though. SNMP is more right. often used for something like that in Nagios. All right. Yeah, and so... You probably want both. Uh, there mm-hmm. might be some small overlap in redundancy, but mostly that would be SNMP traps, which are different. Uh, and yeah, I, I would say SNMP is great for... A lot of times when you're monitoring SNMP, you actually want it for the change, right? So when you monitor SNMP, it's mostly counters. And so just looking at it once doesn't tell you anything. What you would need to look at is okay, that's what it was five minutes ago. This is what it is now. So over the last five minutes, it's changed by this much, right? And that's where a lot of mm-hmm. your actual value in it comes from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Jordan writes in with our uh, last email for, of the week. Uh, Jordan says, uh, hi, Chris and Alan. Thank you, guys. I found, Thanks to you guys. I finally decided to build a free NAS box. In fact, the part should be arriving th- uh, by this week's show. Oh, man, I love that feeling. I'm curious if there are any third-party, inexpensive, cloud-based backup solutions that either of you recommend. I know there's Amazon Glacier, but I didn't know if there was anything better out there. I don't want to spend the money to build out a second server, but would like to have my data backed up, if at all possible. Of course, Jordan didn't tell us how much, but I bet it's a few terabyte, at least, Alan. So an online backup service... 
Now, of course, there's probably some that snap right into FreeNAS as a plugin. Yeah, although the biggest problem is, how, do you know how long it's going to take to upload a couple of terabytes from your computer? It would take, here, it would take days and days and days and days and days. Yeah. So, you know, now, I is might, that the right solution? Well, you know, I've thought about this myself, and I've thought, if I could just let it trickle off-site, uh, you know, at a capped rate for three weeks, and then, and then when it's done, mm-hmm. it's just, after, it, might, it might be worth it. You know, like CrashPlan has like unlimited storage. I don't really like CrashPlan. Um, what about how hard is it to do something like uh, TarSnap and FreeNAS? Is that something that works together fairly easily? Yeah. Uh, TarSnap works. Yeah. Uh, TarSnap or, or – um, I don't think there's a way to do backblaze. But a crash plan would probably also be another way to go. I would look at – one of the th- I don't know if TarSnap offers this, but I know CrashPlan also offers – you can send them a large hard drive with some of your stuff already on it. So if you had an extra two terabyte hard drive or one terabyte hard drive, you could at least send a terabyte's worth ahead of time and sort of save you that upload. That's one kind of nice aspect. Uh, if anybody has any suggestions of other yeah, ways. That would uh, definitely have an advantage over uh, some of the other options if you could do a uh, – you know, get your initial backup done that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If anybody else has any suggestions, techsnap.reddit.com. Look for episode 259 in the subreddit and leave your comments because I'd like to have them posted there because other people could check it as they're watching. Uh, how do you back up your free NAS box to an online service and how much are you backing up? And if you have a question like Jordan. Like, you, yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure for CrashPlan there's already a plugin. Yeah, I thought uh, so like too. Like you said, uh, you know, maybe not your favorite service. Yeah, but the plug-in aspect makes it nice, and the unlimited aspect makes it nice. Uh, yeah. So check it out and let us know what you do, techsnap.reddit.com. And Jordan, that question would be even more helpful if we knew how much space you wanted to back up. When yeah. you say Glacier, I'm thinking it's a lot. Uh, uh, the, remember with Glacier, if you ever want your data back, especially in a reasonable amount of time, it's going to be super expensive. You know, uh, Specifically, the way Glacier pricing is, mm-hmm. you pay – for the most amount you download in a day, as if you downloaded that much per day every day for the entire month. Whoa, really? Yes. That's Glacier a gotcha. Is, is really meant for only ever restoring tiny bits, maybe. It's, <laughs> it's, That's a big or, gotcha. Or being re- like, yeah. If you back up a terabyte into it and try to download that terabyte in one day, you will pay for 30 terabytes of transfer. Yes. And, and their pricing is... <laughs> Basically, these are going on tape, and so it's a big deal for them to actually try to restore a lot of data at once. And so they definitely price it so that you don't try to restore a lot of hmm. data at once. So Glacier is probably not the answer. So before we get out of feedback, we do want to kind of give everybody a heads up. This is really something. Badlock.org. What's yep. Badlock uh, with a Badlock bug, Alan? Why do we all need to know about it? Well, we don't know what the Badlock bug is yet. Uh, exactly. It's already got a page. It's already got a name. And it's already well, got a release date. That even says, uh, thanks to the people from Heartbleed for letting us borrow the template for the page. <laughs> um, but yes, so this is a, a bug that affects the SMB or Windows File Sharing protocol. So it seems the bug's not necessarily in any of the implementations, but is actually in the protocol. Uh, and from my understanding, it has to do with the authentication. And this means that every device that implements SMB is going to need its update for this. So that means every Windows server, almost every Linux server that runs Samba, right? Tons of devices. Uh, PSD, uh, your OS X, your iOS, your Androids, um, 
your routers. A lot of routers have it built in now because oh, yeah. it's a USB port. You can plug a hard oh, drive yeah. into oh, or yeah. something. Oh, yeah. Uh, all the little print servers. Yeah. Your set-top boxes that let you watch stuff on TV. Yeah. Probably your Chromecast, you know, your Roku, et cetera. Uh, all those smart TVs that have DLNA and stuff and can pull files off your file server for you. Yeah. That probably needs it too. Yeah. Internet of Things devices. Yeah. Literally almost everything with the CPU probably has some Samba code on it. Well, that's a hell of a thing. And, and so we'll uh, know more yeah. on April 12th. Yeah. On April 12th, they're going to release, uh, by then the patch will be out and they will release the details and we expect exploits very shortly after that. So... We yeah. will block off April twelfth on your calendar to sit there and be ready yeah. to uh to patch everything. You have it's been warned. Be ridiculous. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for emailing us. We now we need your emails. Yes, you, you right there. Please, won't you send us your question? Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TextNet from the drop down or the subreddit's fine as well. But really, we'd love to get your questions in on this show. Systems Network and Administration Podcast. That's a whole lot of stuff you can ask us. And oh my goodness, oh my goodness, we didn't have a PF Sense or ZFS question in that whole feedback segment. Yeah. Holy smokes, Alan. So there you go. Now you should email in and break the trend or see if you got a question not related to those things and continue the trend. What will happen next week? You guys decide. Let us know. TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com. And with the feedback all done, it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Are the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links, a smattering of these links, came from our subreddit, techsnap.com. All right, Alan, I, I got I, this. I'm so glad I got to pick the first uh, the first Roundup link because I had to put this up front and center just for you because I know you, you in particular, are super excited about Docker's announcement that they now have a beta out for Mac and Windows, and it's better than ever. Docker on Mac or Windows. And here's how it well, works. Well, I knew this was coming, but yes, how does it work? Well, uh, so... Uh, oh, it, it uses VMs, okay. Yeah, on it uses Alpine Linux running on top of an X-Hive virtual machine on Mac OS. Is that a fork of Beehive? Already? X-Hive? X-Hive, it's a version of Beehive. For Mac OS. use the OS X. Well, it doesn't use v- uh, libvmm, the actual kernel side of Beehive. But, it, yeah, it uses the Beehive command line, but it's been adapted to use the uh, service provided by the Apple kernel to do the virtualization offload. Well, So, yeah, there's something... Based on Beehive available for OS X. And, uh, that's what they're using. Good. And then on Windows, they're using uh, Hyper-V. Uh, so well, I'm guessing that's because, uh, well, definitely XHive is free for OS X. And sure. I think Hyper-V is free with certain types of licenses on yeah. Windows. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there you go. You can now use uh, Docker containers under VMs on Mac and Windows. I guess that's what you get to do now. That's that's so that's so they're not really they're not really containers under these operating systems. They're they're virtual machines. Yeah. Well, that's a type of container technically and uh you know, since Linux containers are not secure, uh most people end up running them in VMs anyway. So you end up a VM running a Linux that then you have a Docker inside of, which is even worse, right? I, yeah, I suppose. I'm actually kind of I didn't even know OS 10 had a virtualization offloading anything in its kernel. I, I had no idea. Well, I don't know. There's, I don't know that much about it, but I knew it's based on Beehive uh, and it's open source, and except for the parts that are part of OS X. Yeah, sure. Uh, but okay. it gives you the... 
Um, yeah, I guess I, I guess I'm yeah. getting just caught, I'm getting lost in the weeds. I guess over the nuance between a container and a VM. I saw I you know, but okay, whatever. I guess if you call if you can call it a container, it seems like if you call it well, something a container on Linux and you call it a container on Windows, it should one they should both not be a VM. Like so, it feels like fragmentation to me. It feels, but whatever. Okay, moving on. Uh, this one sounds like something right out of a Batman plot. What's this one from Krebs and Alan? I think. Uh, Something about the Joker stash. Uh, so mostly this is just uh, um, <clears throat> the – so many credit cards of, uh, have been stolen now that it is, the market has changed from where the, the guys with the stolen credit cards trying to sell them had all the power to where the people that want to buy them have so much choice. It's easy. Oh, it's a buyer's market, huh? Yeah. Hey, everybody. Uh, and, and so this is an um, uh, inside look from Krebs at – the Joker Stash, which is a website that sells stolen credit cards, and it looks at all the things they do now to try to to you know one up their competitors, like offering refunds on if you you know some of the stolen cards don't work or loyalty points. You bought a bunch of stolen credit cards before, so we'll give you a <laughs> discount on a new one. <laughs> uh, get you keep coming back, Alan. I think that's a that's a good maneuver. Okay, so the internet is blowing up about this story today. Um, <laughs> it was a PR stunt gone wrong. Microsoft put a put out an AI based on a teen girl, what they said was a quote unquote millennial. Uh, at Tay and Ju, Tay tweets, and within twenty four hours, she became a Hitler loving sex robot that was. Um, Saying very, very inappropriate things on Twitter, responding to uh, people, uh, making Hitler jokes. Literally, the public corrupted this AI from really something. In fact, some of these I I just simply can't read them on air <laughs> because is they're they're just they're too profane to read on air. I, I think people will get upset. But I don't know. Did you see this story, Alan? Yes, I did. Um, well, if it was meant to go out there and watch a bunch of what other people say and then respond, I don't know. Yeah, what were they thinking was going to happen? Maybe it's a big publicity stunt. Uh, yeah, yeah, so but it definitely went wrong. And here's here's what's weird. Like, so uh, somebody tweets at uh, the AI. Ted Cruz is the Zodiac killer. Tay, Tay tweets responds. Ted Cruz is the Cuban Hitler. He blames others for all problems. That's what I've heard so many people say. That's the AI's response. That's yeah. <laughs> weird. <laughs> so weird. Uh, but there was there are just different ones that are. Uh, <laughs> there's one where she calls herself a bad naughty robot, and uh, yeah. So Microsoft yeah. shut it down. Oh, also she blamed Bush for 9/11, and uh, Hitler would do a better job than the monkey we've got now. And Donald yes. Trump is the only hope we've got. But you, what you can tell is obviously just <laughs> quoting other people. That, you know things it's seen online. It's obviously yeah. not. I, I, I guess so. But. I guess so. I guess that must be it. That's 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 got to be it. But yes, when you set it up to learn and then tell people, hey, this robot's going to learn from what you say. People say horrible things to it, and that's what happens. You know what sounds like something somebody might say? I never get spam from a gov domain. Uh oh. <laughs> Well, guess what? Spammers yeah, are abusing Yeah, this is another that. Krebs article about uh, some bad uh, practices on some .gov domains. For example, there's the one he's got here, which is, uh, I think, from South Dakota. <laughs> so there's this uh, domain based on sd.gov, and it has like slash scripts slash uh, program redirect.asp, and then the URL it redirects to is a parameter you pass in the URL. So 
you know, there's an example in the, in the page here that redirects you from that .gov domain to the Krebs website. But spammers have been using this so that when you get, or fishers, so you get this email saying, hey, we're from the government and you need to fill out this form or give us a username and password. And here's our totally and you highlight URL. over the link and it's, oh, it's a blah at gov. I'm, I, I feel okay clicking on that. Yep, yep. It's like, nope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a .gov domain. I can trust that. I can trust that. I can hear people saying that. Well, Alan, it's all over. The once thought DDR4 memory, the savior from Rowhammer is no savior. It may actually be vulnerable to Rowhammer. In fact, a paper titled How Rowhammer Could Be Used to Exploit Weakness in Computer Hardware arrived at the conclusion that by testing different DIMMs that were actually way off than originally reported, and based on analysis by Third IO, they believe the problem is significantly worse and that it's visible already on some DDR4 memory modules. So Yeah, well, I don't... It wasn't that we thought DDR4 would protect us. It was just that DDR4 didn't look like vulnerable back then. But no. oh, There you go. There you go, Alan. Okay. All right. Next story in the roundup. Apple suspects server tampering during shipment. So I guess they're concerned about like some agencies or somebody grabbing <laughs> yes. servers and in- injecting stuff. Uh, so, yeah, when Apple's been trying to order hardware, they're like, our hardware showed up with more firmware than we expected. <laughs> I'm impressed that they're even checking for that. Well, I don't think they were until they heard about other people having this problem. Yeah, interesting. You know, remember we talked about Cisco purposely, uh, you know, shipping to empty warehouses and then having the customer go and pick it up and stuff rather than shipping directly to the customer because they knew that it would be intercepted? Yeah, it says uh, Apple has long suspected the servers uh, it ordered from t- the traditional supply chain were intercepted during shipping with additional chips and firmware added to them by unknown third parties or to make them vulnerable to infiltration. Apple even assigned people to take photographs of motherboards and annotate them with a function of each tip, chip, explaining why it was supposed to be there. Building its own servers with motherboards is designed it would be the most uh, surefire way for Apple to prevent unauthorized snooping. You think they will build their own servers? That'd be interesting. Uh, well, probably not. They still order, but yeah, uh, most of this is based on the idea that apparently Apple is working on building their own cloud uh, to run all their stuff on. Uh, even Do though they're they not already, deal. what happened well, to that no, big? They, huge... were on, they were on Amazon, yeah, and they just signed a four hundred million dollar deal to move to Google, right, instead of Amazon. But does that? But, uh, but they also have like two or three very large data centers already that are filled full of servers. So yeah, I, apparently that's not where you know a lot of their stuff runs. I, maybe I don't know what they do with their data center. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, that's weird. One person I knew who knew some stuff like that couldn't talk about it and doesn't. I would I mean it's who knows maybe some maybe some jobs were on different things. Um all right, so this is just kind of a follow-up story. You remember LavaBit Allen which was the email provider that the US government went after very aggressively at the time it was suggested because that's where Edward Snowden likely stored his email. Of course, the U.S. government said that is not the case. That is not the case. And uh, Lavar was his name, or uh, I can't remember the guy's name that ran LavaBit. Uh, but he ended up shutting it down, went to court, fought it. Yeah. Well, after a little accidental leak. Yes. Yeah, so, well, I don't know so much as leak, but yeah, when the, the government published the paperwork, it yeah. forgot to redact. Yes, essentially, redacted. it was a forgot redact, uh, yeah. And you can see very clearly that it says the email address that the whole lawsuit is about. Yeah. Is yeah. There it is. Ed underscore Snowden. At lavabit.com. Yeah. So it was all about Snowden, which is not a surprise at all. But Who would have figured? Why did they even bother lying about that? Yep. You know what? I need to know. I need to know about SMTP strict transport security. Lay it on me, right. brother. So if you remember, you remember HSTS, HTTP, strict transport security. It's basically a header you set in your website, 
and it says this website will always have HTTPS. Um, and so if you ever go to this website and it doesn't have HTTPS, don't do it. Just try HTTPS. If it doesn't work, then this website is down. Or if, if it's only available on HTTP, it's probably because somebody is messing with your connection. Right? So we have this mm-hmm. already for websites. Yes. Um, and it has an exp- uh, you, you said an expiration so that you could eventually turn it off if you wanted to. But the whole point is that you wouldn't. Uh, you're saying, I guarantee they'll always have HTTPS. Um, so the question, you know, uh, they want to do the same thing for email. Because we've, uh, we've talked about before, some companies were like filtering out the start SSL line or start TLS line out of the header from the mm-hmm. webmail servers so that you wouldn't connect with encryption so they could virus scan and so on. Uh, but so this would basically allow uh, email servers to say, when they talk to you normally, be like, hey, I will always have encryption. So always connect to me encrypted. If you ever connect and it, uh, you can't connect encrypted, just stop. Uh, because it means someone's messing with your connection or our connection. Uh, and so this is uh, the best way that I can think of mm-hmm. um, to ensure that, you know, e- encryption can't be stripped off connections that definitely should have encryption. So, so I'd expect, you know, Gmail to use this. Yeah. And if anybody ever or, can connect to Gmail with a good SSL certificate, then they know yeah. some fishy is going on. Or here. really anybody who's kind of concerned about that. Um, so then the question becomes... If that does work, does Google have to not use it because of the number of places where Gmail will stop working if they do enable this? I wonder if there'd be a way to not make it mandatory. Well, no, this wouldn't be mandatory. This is no, I mean, optional for each site. But. No, if Google could say, uh, if Google had this and said, you should always get this, you don't have to use SSL, but you should always, you should always be able to. But yeah, what HSTS works, the way it works is it, you, yeah. once you see that from the site, you remember that and be like, no, I will never accept Only connect using, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, interestingly, I've never, I'd never seen it before, but uh, SSL certificate expired on a website today, um, and my browser didn't give me the option to continue anyway hmm. because that website had had HSTS, and it said that right in the error message. Because the site had HSTS, <laughs> it will not allow you to, uh, the browser decides it won't, that you know, a valid, an invalid certificate is definitely not going to happen on their site. These people have been proactive. Doesn't mean they didn't forget to renew their certificate, but anyway. That happened today? Uh, That's great. Yes. That's great. <laughs> have, you, uh, have you ever tried to, like, your batteries are low, like on a wireless key fob, and you put it up to your chin, and you use your skull yeah. to make it, to boost the signal? For, your, or just to reach it further away, because you don't know where your car is in the parking lot? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I've uh, always thought about boosting the signal. different. Uh, okay. So in this story, we're talking about those car keys that you don't actually have to put in the car. Right. You know, it's just, as long as you're within, you know, once, once you're in the car, yeah. it will just, you know, it, basically the car unlocks as you walk up to it, and you get in, and it, the car will just start as long as you're, you know, within 10 feet of the car or whatever. Right, right. Um, but in this one, uh, using a radio attack, the attackers were able to boost the range of the key up to 300 feet. hey So then, while you're, say, in the office uh, at work or, you know, in the mall, the attackers just put the booster near you where they could then, uh, you know, be close enough to your key to pick up the, the signal your key would be sending. And boost it out into the parking lot, and now they can unlock your car and steal all the contents of your car, and even start your car. And, although most of these will stop working once you get out of range, so they couldn't really drive the car very far, but they could definitely drive it up on, say, the back of a tow truck to tow it away. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> hmm. 
yeah, you know, so my uh, twenty four different models of cars from nineteen different manufacturers. My so the way my my vehicle works is uh, it's one of those plastic fobby things. It's not a real key, uh, right. and yeah, I, I have a I have a button on it. If I'm within range, I can start the engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have to put the fobby thing in a slot and turn it like you would if it, as if it were a key and then it like has little teeth that come out and like hold it in the, in position while I'm driving uh and in some ways the truck is almost more secure bef- uh, it, with the truck started with the fob without the key in because uh it, the computer locks down and you can't do anything like if you just it, it's a really interesting condition so i wonder how far you could get if if you could bypass it and if you could make it think your key was in – if perhaps in my truck, you could fool it to think something was in that little slot and turn and maybe you would be able to drive away. I don't know. Yep. But yeah, with, with these keys, uh, they don't work like that. But mm-hmm. yeah. uh, anyway, it's like an older one. Definitely an interesting story. So uh, Amex fesses up. Your credit card data was – ah, oh, jeez. Are you serious? It was <clears throat> three years ago? God yeah, dang and, it. Uh, you know, they're like, oh, Amex's uh, servers were never breached. It's like, well – yeah, but you gave the data to someone else who's were, so it's really not any better. Mm-hmm. My data is just as stolen. It doesn't matter that your servers are still secure. <laughs> you gave it the data to somebody whose servers weren't. That's like, it, down. That's it. Maybe, hey, Amex, you should have done a better job checking on the servers of the people before you give them my data. I give up. I'm switching to Bitcoin across the board. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. Okay, so we might have uh, a little bit of uh, indication of who could be helping the FBI crack the iPhone now that they say they might not need Apple's help. Yeah, so uh, in case you didn't hear, the FBI has filed a stay in their court case against Apple saying, we'd like to delay this a little while because someone has come forward saying that they can help us, and if we can get them to do it, then we don't need to have this lawsuit with Apple. Huh, weird. Uh, Which furthers their point that it's about this only this one phone, but I think it's only... Because they're not winning, uh, they were about you know, to re- love to have the precedent. They were about to. They it. were about to have the opposite precedent of what they wanted. Exactly. They were about to have the All Writs Act looked at with a very close eye. Yeah, but apparently, uh, this Israeli firm called uh, Celebrite, yeah, uh, which makes forensic software for police departments. Uh, you know, they've already sell police departments tools for breaking older iPhones. They just don't have one for the iPhone nine yet. But obviously, they've been working on one because that's their whole business model, uh, and so. They claim maybe their beta will be able to do it. And so, you know, I've seen more and more people come out of the woodwork saying you can remove the chip, that people can remove the chip, the, yes, the persistent yeah. storage. It just seems like well, that's the and way then to go. You would still have to attack it, but yeah, you yeah. wouldn't have to wear with the password limit. Yeah. Uh, yeah but that would grant you what the FBI was requesting. It might have a better way. Maybe. Sorry May- to say. And you know, uh, if you look at iOS <laughs> 9.3, which just came out like a couple of days ago, they have in there all of the things they fixed, and there is a crap ton of vulnerabilities in earlier versions of iOS 9 that they just patched in 9.3, and those phones would have those older versions of iOS. In fact, I think they even have iOS 8. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so this is an interesting story. Uh, hackers have modified a water treatment parameter, well, mostly by, a- parameter. Yeah, yeah. by accident. So they broke in and got into one server and then found an INI file, a config file, that had the passwords in it, <laughs> and then they got all over the place. They didn't realize what it was that they were breaking into and accidentally modified some parameters and changed what the water treatment plant was doing. Luckily, no one was actually harmed by any of this. You know, nobody got sick or and the water wasn't poisoned or anything. But, you know, <laughs> if they had known what they, that they were breaking into a water treatment plant, uh, it might have been slightly different. What a, what a, what a weird, weird story. Uh, this one I thought was kind of interesting because 
it sounds completely completely typical. Uh, over seventy CCC TVs. That's the CCTVs are like the uh, closed circuit TVs for like you know security cameras and whatnot. Uh, over seventy different models of DVRs tr- that are all traced back to a single Chinese firm have a fairly fairly significant vulnerability in the firmware. Researchers discovered a remote code execution vulnerability that allowed him to run shell commands by accessing a, speci- a specially crafted URL accessible via the DVR's built-in server. And you track it all back, it goes back to the same firm who's built this for a yeah. bunch of different so models. 70 different uh, DVRs, but it's all the same software. Yep. You know, you see a bunch of different companies all selling DVRs, but they just bought the software for the DVR from the same firm. So something tells me... Um, but basically the big deal here is that the company continued to sell the buggy software even after researchers told them, hey, yes. there's a bug, you should fix it, years right. ago. That is a good point. And also something tells me that... Uh, your security DVRs and probably the machine you're getting around to updating every month. And you might not even, that might not even be something depending on how it's set up. You get patches for it regularly or how they, yeah. maybe they're, de- well, what in particular, a mess. you know, you didn't buy it from the Chinese company that makes the software. You yeah. bought it from yeah. some company that bought yeah. it. That, and they're not that, maintaining it up, up the street. Yeah, and, and you know, and, you know, they might not even, the company you bought it from might not exist anymore. Yeah. Right? Or they might not know. How, they might not have any idea what you're talking about. And uh, to, to, you know, to they, come, a lot of times, it's kind of come back to actually the payment things we were talking about before with the EMV chip terminals. Is it was a company that made yeah right that makes the security cameras and they used to record to tape and all mm-hmm. of a sudden they've switched to the digital and they're like, oh we just bought the software and plonk it on and yeah they may not know anything about computers at all they right. just make cameras and and. Tape recorders. In the meantime, somebody should capitalize on this uh, in a Hollywood uh, setting because you've now literally got this scenario where you could break into a bank or something or whatever it would be. Uh, you know, this is a movie and commit your crime and then remotely execute a shell command to delete all of the security footage of your crime or, or on you your way out just, the door. <laughs> you could, you know, turn it off. Yeah, the right. Just shut the thing on. down. Yeah, yep. right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, let's uh, let's talk about another vulnerability. This is one that uh, Alan tossed here in the roundup. I like it's got yes. pictures of band-aids. So um, there's a cross-site scripting vulnerability in the National Vulnerability Database. Wait, well, what? Which is the website you go to to find out yeah. about cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. Oh. Yes. So the U.S. National Vulnerability Database, or NVD, which is a website we feature all the time on the show when we talk about yeah. a CVE, right? Yeah. Uh, it turns out there's a cross-site scripting vulnerability in that site, uh, which basically would allow me to load malicious code into that site. So I could send you a link to NVD, and you're like, oh, I know that that's a trusted website. I'm going to read about this vulnerability. And it's actually going to pull in code from some other site and run a rootkit on your machine or something. Wow. That's, yeah. that's great. Well, yeah. I guess they're going to get that's that fixed up pretty quick. Cross-site scripting vulnerabilities is it takes a site you trust and pulls in untrusted code. You know, Alan, here in America, when you do something wrong, when you cross the law... We will find you. We will hunt you down. I don't care how long it takes. We will get you because in America, this is the land of laws. And I am happy to tell the TechNap audience that the guy behind the fappening has been arrested. Took him a little while, but they finally got the guy that... So turns out it wasn't actually abusing the password reset feature like we thought. Uh, It was phishing scams. Oh, like she did. She might have fallen for a trick. Uh, Yeah. Apparently, oh. did phishing scams against Gmail and iCloud accounts, compromised mm. 50 iCloud accounts and 72 Gmail accounts over the course of two years uh, by doing phishing attacks with fake login screens for Google and Apple. 
Huh. You know, according to Recode, they say there's actually no direct link to the, this hacking and the guy. Although he is responsible for, like, Kate Upton uh, and others in the past. So, yep. I don't know. I don't it's follow it too closely. Lawrence. But it seems interesting. Huh. So they finally got that guy. Uh, <clears throat> Angolia's got Wikipedia pirates, Alan? Now, this yeah. is really 2016. Right. So this is a thing we talked a little bit about where Facebook and Wikimedia Foundation have provided free internet access in Angola, but the only two websites you can go to are Wikipedia and Facebook. So being, you know, uh, they get bored, basically. People, they got they bored. Decided, <laughs> well, what they did was they embedded, like, movies or other websites into Wikipedia articles or the yep. talk sections or comments or anywhere. And so that they could share it with their friends. Good for them. Or, you know, posting pirated movies on Facebook. Good for them. I mean... Well, it just shows that, you know, when you're given certain constraints, you find... You you do the best you can within those constraints. Yeah. And I actually... So if the only internet access you have is Wikipedia and Facebook, then you find a way to share movies with Facebook. I think it's an interesting way also to learn. I mean, that's a a great way to learn the system and, uh, and push on it and... Figure out how it works. So but, you know, it's, it's really the, the opposite of net neutrality and so on, right? You're talking about, oh, you can have the internet, but you can only have Facebook and Wikipedia. Yeah. Any of this prorated stuff where uh, you can binge and get as much as you want and it doesn't cost anything as long as you get it from this one spot is literally going to be the destruction of independent media on the internet and the end of small businesses really having a foothold over any, in any kind of market that a large business does. It's kind yeah, of but sad. You, like you can actually picture some people that would be like, "Oh, I'm paying Comcast all this money when for less for free I could get just Facebook and Wikipedia and Google." And it's like I don't go to any other websites, right? I know it's sad, especially you know when Facebook embeds the news articles you link to rather than actually sending you to the other site. It's pretty much, yeah. You you basically have created the AOL walled garden all of a sudden. Well, and you know. And, they're convincing people to go into it for free instead of charging money. There is uh, mobile carriers now that are, uh, are letting you just stream YouTube videos for free. If you're watching it from YouTube or Netflix, it's absolutely free. Well, uh, th- the long the long arm Thanks for screwing JB <laughs> right. The long arm impact of that is uh, that means it does cost money when you download from Scale Engine and JB, yep. uh, and so that's. That that's a bummer because it, it the 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 sort of meta effect of that is not only does it sort of screw Alan as a content uh, CDN uh, and that business model, but it also kind of locks me more and more into sticking with YouTube because otherwise people aren't going to be able to watch my stuff because they have to pay for it outside of that, and so yeah. it locks and us into a system that's not ideal for necessarily. Yeah, always. YouTube is definitely not ideal because you know they like to screw around on the copyrights on the, your own damn files. Yeah. Uh, and so it's uh, – boy, it's one of those things where you see this, this, these initiatives by, by Facebook and uh, by T-Mobile and you look at this stuff and you can see why people are excited about it because they get something for it for free, for free. But there is so many long-term ramifications beyond just the stuff you immediately think of that uh, like lock into – I mean we take something that is, that is decentralized like the internet and we are, we are forming these fiefdoms like YouTube and Facebook yep. – and then we are having these other we are now we are now have the telecoms the people that are providing the infrastructure they're completing the other end of that and they're locking us into these fiefdoms uh, but you know what 
At least you get to binge. I don't mean to get up on a soapbox about it, but I watch all this kind of stuff. So when I see these guys pushing this Facebook system and Wikipedia system and learning how to push the, push the boundaries, I actually think that's a great thing because mm-hmm. that's how the Internet should be. But, uh, yeah, I find it very interesting that uh, they've decided to make YouTube free on some of these. It's like, how often do you watch YouTube where you don't have Wi-Fi, though? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, I guess when you're like, maybe on well, the bus. when you're Yeah, but it's, it seems like, you know, that – YouTube is the worst offender for the phone companies about why their Wi-Fi is so, you know, yeah. oversubscribed. And well, so if on. you it watch seems- it on their service, they 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 downgrade it. They 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 make it. Oh look- right, they lower it to super low quality yeah. and so yeah. on. Yeah, and they they bitrate control it and uh, all of that. So they also, in some cases, they completely proxy it too. So that way, depending on the content, you don't even go. You're not even going to the service anymore to download it. You're going to T-Mobile service to download it. Uh, so they're pretty proud of that. Um, anyways, yeah, I don't know. We'll see where that goes. That's just getting more and more interesting to watch. I, I, uh, I, I think there is a big problem with mobile internet in general. Uh, as somebody who lives at, out of my house on a mobile internet connection, I can tell you, I would really like somebody to shake it up there. The T-Mobile offering is, is kind of a, is enticing from that standpoint, but, uh, there's, we have all these devices and all of these things. And we still don't quite have the ubiquitous internet we need, and this these are the missing pieces that we haven't figured out yet. Mr. Jude, is there anything else we need to cover on this week's episode of the TechSnap program? Uh, no, we've uh, covered it all. Uh, we do have yes. a – down in the near future, we have a double coming up. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com <coughs> slash calendar to find out That's about that. Two weeks? I think so. I think so. So we'll definitely need your questions too, TechSnap so, at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Well, are we doing the double on the 7th, or is it the double to cover the 7th? I think we're doing a double on the seventh. I don't know. Okay. I'd have to, you know, Ange is the keeper of the calendar. I'd have to ask her. Well, it's because you're going away, right? So <laughs> I figured you might know. Yeah, it should be because I'm going away for spring break for Dylan's spring break on, I believe. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. We might actually well, be this. It, it might actually it, be the seventh that I'm gone. I think it's the seventh right. that I'm gone. Right. So that would mean the doubles next week. Yeah. It would, wouldn't it? <laughs> check, check the JB calendar. I think it is next week. You know what? We we should probably we should probably get the word out there. If only there was some sort of me- me- a medium we could use to let our audience know that we would be recording two episodes next week, then we could use that medium to inform them right now. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for all that kind of stuff, which is apparently where Alan and I need to go to. <laughs> yeah, I'm going there right now. Hold on. Okay, I'll go there too. Uh, let's see. Yes, the 7th has no show scheduled. Okay. So yes, next week, yeah. double text nap. Double text nap next week. Early. Jeez. Also, remember, the next week is when daily savings time changes in Europe, so everything's all cattywampus. Man. It's, because it is now summer... TechSnap is at 2,000 UTC, except yes. for next week where it will be 1,800 UTC because yes. we're starting two hours early. Right. Yeah. Got that. Uh, so, well, the show, we changed 2,000 UTC last week or two weeks ago. Um, y- if you're in Europe, your time relative to UTC hasn't changed but is about to change. Okay. It's all kinds of crazy. Use the calendar, convert to your time zone, and mm-hmm. hope that it's right. Yeah, and then uh, send your emails in. We're going to need those. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. uh, hang out in the live chat room. But I'm glad we, I'm glad we were oh, yeah. just sort of... Five-year anniversary next week, and it's a double episode. Wow! Look at us just meandering into, like, a very important conversation at the end of the show. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, we should probably mention a whole bunch of big stuff. All right, show up live for the, five, for the fifth. If you've never been to a TechSnap Live, or if you can make it work, we're going to be recording for a while. So show up and say hi for our fifth birthday that'd be pretty cool uh yep. jblive.tv is worth live jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar and if you can't make it of course we will have it available in download 
downloadable. There you go. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 